my fellow humans. This is the Trans Agenda Podcast. If you are coming back, hey, welcome back. If you are new here, my name is Sean. I am a non-binary transmasculine person, and I use all pronouns. This is a podcast where I talk and interview others about trans issues and topics like mental health, healing trans-related trauma, battling transphobia, and related topics, as well as trans news, positive and negative. This episode, we're covering this past month's trans news, and then we'll delve into the trans discourse of the month. There will, of course, be mentions of transphobia and general trigger warnings for related triggers. If you are at a place where you are comfortable, get some water, maybe a blanket, and a snack, and let's get right into it. So this is this month's scheduled podcast. We have some great guests ahead of us today, but the first thing to cover is this month's trans news. So first on the agenda, on Friday, September 10th, the corn, oh my god, no, the uh, the Connie Norman Trans Empowerment Center was opened in West Hollywood. This empowerment center is the first of its kind being made by and for trans people, and was named after the fabulous trans rights activist and AIDS awareness advocate, Connie Norman. More on her later. But this empowerment center will house many trans organizations such as Flux and the Unique Women's Coalition. The center focuses on building advocacy, wellness, and better health for trans and non-binary communities. Now, I'd like to say that this just warms my heart. I love Connie Norman just in general, given like the trans and AIDS activism. She was honestly just so amazing and was also known as the AIDS diva, by the way. It's amazing to see a building named after her, especially one that is everything that she would have wanted it to be. And on top of all of it. It is just, it's just such an amazing thing to exist. It's awesome. Honestly, there's so much I could say about this center. It is just so cool to me. Like, so many trans people came together in their organizations and made this awesome space. Like, I, I just love stuff like this, guys, honestly. This just, this is great. But also, like, Connie Norman, I can't think of anyone else to name this after. Like, let me just bring something up real quick. And I will just read a little bit about Connie Norman to you guys, because I'm, I'm trying to go off script, but I didn't write a lot about this. But they were just amazing. And more on any of that. I have the Wikipedia up now, so I'll read this to you for a second. So Connie Norman was an AIDS and gay and transgender rights activist with ACT 
you wait no with act up la my bad i didn't read it properly um beginning in 1991 she was the host of the first daily commercial talk radio show about gay issues in los angeles and also co-hosted a television show i think you can see why i like connie norman at this point um very very iconic um i love her but after her death from aids act up scattered her ashes on the White House lawn, which I think is great. Um, especially given all of the stuff going on. But yeah, I'll give more on ACT UP too. So Norman was a member of the AIDS activism group ACT UP, which stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which is just so cool. I love it. Um, she also worked with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation to campaign for AIDS services, which is just cool. Um, and like I said, she was also named the AIDS diva because of her outspokenness about AIDS and LGBTQ plus issues. Um, here's something interesting that I write in here. So in the summer of 1990, Norman protested that home health care providers contracted by Los Angeles County refused to go to minority neighborhoods after dark, and that some did not accept Medicare or Medi-Cal. She protested that the county's outpatient clinic was also understaffed to the point that they were four-month wait times for appointments. So essentially this is like, Norman was like, people are going to die before they can get help at this point, which I mean, that's, that was very true. Like, all of this stuff did happen. But, yeah, if you look into the uh, the AIDS epidemic and AIDS activism, there's a lot more on that stuff there. But you'll, you'll come across Connie Norman a lot. Um, one thing you can look at for the uh, radio show is the Connie Norman show. You can look it up. But obviously, I'm a little bit inspired by that because <laughs> I think it's so cool. Um, heck, I'm doing a I'm doing a trans podcast, so you can see where this is going. But yeah, honestly, this this whole thing is just so cool. Like I saw, I'm getting this from there was a pink news video that came up on my feed about this, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's just that's amazing. But yeah, anyways, let's move on a little bit. So on the topic of trans and non-binary support, a recent study done by TransPals Canada, Canada, where I live, um, interviewed over two, wait, no, not over, almost 2,900 trans and non-binary people. And they highlighted the importance of social supports for trans people. Now we all know this since most of you who are listening are also trans. But I think having this data to present to cisgender folks will be very helpful, especially when we're trying to, like, help with, you know, sy systemic oppression. Um, where was I? Sorry, <laughs> I lost where I was on my script. But according to the study, one in five trans youth involved in the survey said that they have avoided schools in the past five years because of fear of harassment. 
and 70% of the surveyed individuals said that they would avoid public restrooms for the same reason in the same time frame. Now, this study perfectly segues into the month that I personally had. Um, so I am a high schooler, oh my gosh, shocker, and uh, I go to a high school with an all-gender bathroom. However, there's a reason I said a all-gender bathroom. There is only one in the whole three-floored school. So earlier in the school year, I wasn't even aware that my school had any all-gender bathrooms, which is, like, kind of annoying, because I'm openly trans in high school. Um, but basically, I just avoided washrooms as a whole, because, I mean, it is stressful. Like, most of you guys who are listening are trans, so you would understand what I'm talking about. Um, but anyways, this did not end well for me. Uh, one day at school, I had a series of really, really crappy cramps that made it, like, really hard to walk for intervals at a time. Um, at first, I thought it was a combination of test anxiety and, like, me having a period or whatever, but I was wrong. It was fully because of me avoiding going to the washrooms at school, which, like, I didn't really think that that sort of thing would happen, but anyway... This sort of thing hurt me on, like, a physical level, because, like, you know, you're not supposed to not go to the washroom. Shocker. I probably should have thought about that. But on top of that, the anxiety that I felt every time I felt I had to go to the washroom just made everything worse. So on that day, I obviously went home because I couldn't do anything, which led to me missing a whole day of school that I am still behind on at this point. And of course, after this event, I contacted the school and asked how I could, like, be accommodated because there's no way in hell I'm going to do that to myself. But my school showed me the washroom. But it was on its own. It was like its own signal. Signal. Oh my gosh. Sig. Jesus. I can't. Ugh, words are hard, guys. Um. Yeah, so they showed me the washrooms but it was like one of its own sort of stalls. But later that day, I found out that the washroom doubled as a spec ed washroom, which isn't how it's supposed to be. Like, not all of you guys live in Canada, but like, I live in an area where we have school boards and whatever, so the school board would um, issue like, sort of requirements for school building sort of thing, right? Um, and one of them was that you have one spec ed bathroom and one um, gender neutral bathroom. Um, but apparently this school just wasn't outfitted that way. Like they're apparently they're trying to make another one now, but I don't know how long that's going to take. But anyway, yeah, that was kind of freaky because they aren't supposed to do that. Um, there's only supposed to be one for both things. But regardless of what I thought, I am basically still forced to either risk possibly being harassed in the school washrooms or to just hold it in. And I'm not alone, which is really crappy. Um, and it's why I'm trying to like make changes at my own school regarding this. Like I'm, I'm kind of making myself known and forcing myself into this. Like, hey, can I get the like construction timelines, please? Um, but yeah, that was basically the month that I had, um, in regards to, uh, 
trans-related stuff, but I think this points to the lack of social acceptance because no teacher thought to tell me about this washroom, even though I was like openly trans quite a bit. Um, nobody was really there for me when that was going on. And I am not the only trans person who is like really, who has the unfortunate decision to either suck it up and like harm their own bodies or stick their neck out and possibly get harassed. But, yeah. Yeah, that's basically what happened to me this past month. But, um, I'm going to segue away from that because I can't talk about that without just getting riled up. So, to segue into the next topic through social acceptance, I'd like to talk about another new trans podcast that I bet a lot of you are aware of. This month, Brennan Beckwith and Storm Ryan created a trans podcast called Brennanies, where they talk about trans topics and experiences. Now, I've talked about trans medicalism previously, but not the online drama, for lack of a better word, surrounding it. Most of you are probably already aware of the situation, so I won't repeat that here, but I'll link a video by Cops Hate Mo on the Calvin Garris saga, which is basically what this comes from. Now that I assume that you are all caught up, I'd like to say that this is such a significant podcast for the trans community right now. Um, this podcast is just so amazing. The two of them being openly friends and redirecting the energy of the trans community is just so cool. Like, these are two people who used to, like, hate... Well, not hate is a different word for it, but they used to be openly against people like each other. Like, this is a very, very uniting podcast, which I just love to see. Honestly, for those of you who are not recovered, you probably won't see the same sort of thing as people who are recovered do. But um, since, you know, transmedicalism had such a massive effect on the trans community, specifically the transmasculine community, this sort of thing right now is will either be amazing or it will be very hard to digest depending on where you are on your own journey. And of course, I'm not saying that like, oh, if you if you don't think this is super cool, then like speed up your process. That's not what I mean at all. Like we all have different healing processes. Like that makes perfect sense. But from like where I'm personally at, I think this is such an interesting turn of events. Like the fact that these guys are doing this now is just I love it it's great like I love to see first of all Storm Ryan realizing that he was wrong and adapting and like saying some of the stuff that he does on the podcast like he has definitely like changed his perspectives which is just amazing and to like see Brennan be able to like thrive with Storm Ryan as well like it's just it's all great. I, I love it. But honestly, even if the online drama with transmedicalism didn't end up affecting you, this pod is just so symbolic of the healing of transmasculine people. And I don't, I don't see how that's not just absolutely amazing. All right, so this is the point in the episode where we have an interview section. 
it didn't turn out to be an interview, but yeah, it was because of tech problems. But anyways, this is the first time we have had somebody else on this podcast, which is just awesome. I love it. But um, today we have a trans psychotherapist located in Toronto, Canada, named Chris Hamilton, and they provide a lot of psychotherapy for both LGBTQ plus individuals and just a bunch of different things, but they also specialize in dealing with religious trauma. Um, I am so excited to be doing this podcast with another non-binary person, um, and I'm going to just state what this sort of interview-like video is going to be based around. So the first question that they're going to address is this one, which is, as a therapist that works with a lot of trans people, what, from your experience, is one of the most common struggles that trans people face in terms of mental health? Which is, that's the first thing. Second thing is, what are some constructive ideas on how we in and outside of the trans community can help mitigate these struggles or help make things better for those struggling. Third question is, as someone who owns your own practice and who is trans, were there any notable obstacles surrounding owning your own business that came from your trans identity? And with that is question four, which is what were some of the ways you dealt with those obstacles? The fifth and final question would be, what advice would you give to a trans person wanting to open an independent practice like yourself? Um, and I just want to say before I hand the mic over to them that I am so glad to work with you and it's really cool to have you on. Um, and all of their websites are going to be linked in the description of this episode along with their Instagram and YouTube channel and all of that fun stuff. But anyways, I'm taking up their time to shine. So take it away, Chris. Hey, Sean. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Super excited to be here to speak from my perspective um, as a non-binary trans mental health provider. Uh, my name is Chris. Pronouns are they, them. Um, I work in what colonially known is Toronto, though I offer all virtual services right now. So um, I currently actually have clients all over the world. And in some ways, this is thanks to a very strange pandemic world um, that has really opened up the borders for virtual services. Uh, no longer are we limited to our geographical location in order to access care that feels like a good fit, which has been super exciting for me during this time. Um, when I sit with, the, with this question around what are the common struggles that trans people face in terms of mental health, I think that there are sort of three areas that pop up for me. Um, the one thing is that kind of at the end of the day, the only thing that shows up with queer and trans folks that doesn't show up with cis folks is that of dysphoria. I feel like that just kind of needs to be named. Um, the second piece that is very much related to that, I think, is shame. 
again, this is not at all limited to just trans folks, uh, but I think that there is something of the sort of pack animal inside us that is um, that we draw from our sense of belonging related to our communities uh, that offer safety and security, that as little, little queer folks, uh, once we start to notice that we're a little bit different, something happens in our system. And in the therapy world, sometimes we throw this like phrase around, which is what wires together gets fired together. So when we wire shame um, or difference or not belonging into our queer identities, it can give a pretty bad kickback as we keep growing up in these communities uh, where we're taught how to be within this binary, gender binary world that is all around us. So I think that the, a lot of the work that I do, um, both my internal work as well as with others, is really just sort of sitting with this question of what is it to actually be trans? Why is it that we end up focusing so much on dysphoria? I mean, we know it's a very pathologized thing. This is like deeply steeped in medicalization and in doctors and in history. So like we know, and also what is it that we do with this? How do we actually sit with this in a way that doesn't focus all of our energy into the contraction, into the smallness, into the shame of being different, but rather offers ways of expansion, of reconnection, of being present to our bodies in ways that do feel good alongside the ways that don't feel good. And so in, in my practice, when we run gender groups, we often talk about following the breadcrumbs to euphoria. Our bodies know contraction. They know dysphoria so well. That is not something that we need to practice to be good at. But sometimes what can be helpful is to fold in practices of checking in with ourselves and seeing, you know, how do I want to show up in this world? Who's telling me that I can or cannot show up in this particular way, in this particular body? What is this experience that I'm having? And so alongside the dysphoria, which we turn toward and we say, thank you for letting me know that something's not okay. What is it that I do about this? How do I want to support this contraction? While simultaneously leaning into the euphoria, leaning into those breadcrumbs that say, where am I going? What does feel good? Who am I? inside this experience of life, inside this experience of body that I get to follow while I'm doing this deep inner work of finding myself, you know? And so in, in a lot of ways, just to circle back to shame, shame as a, it's a mechanism that keeps us as part of the pack. And so when that gets written into our bodies, shame literally makes us want to hide. And so we end up hiding from ourselves and thus hiding from the people who love us because there's also a fear in there of whether or not we are going to lose our communities, lose the people that we care about because we are so different. So when we sit with that folding inwards, that shame, shame is healed by being seen but not exposed. 
So in a lot of ways, the work that I do in the therapy room, the work that we do in gender groups, the work that we do sort of even just within the trans community is that we show up for ourselves and we show up for other people. We let ourselves be seen in safe enough ways, in safe-er spaces, to start to explore what it feels like. Can our system handle the feeling of euphoria when what it's known has been dysphoria? Can we tolerate feelings of happiness? Can we tolerate being seen? And so in community, we can start to actually heal shame together by being present to one another. We can start to heal these places of disconnect by actually expanding our borders, if you will, um, as opposed to this like gatekeeping thing, which is like, well, are you trans enough? That question shows up in our gender groups every single time. Am I trans enough? And that question to me really feels so heartbreaking because there isn't such a thing as enough, trans enough. Those are scripts that are packed into our bodies, that we are told to live by within this binary system that we're in. And for so long as the greater community is not a safe enough place for us to all reside and be, it starts to show up also within trans community. The trans community can also be very binary. And so what I love about the non-binary wave that is sort of flowing through right now is that it's really opening up the conversation. It's opening up spaces to say, what do we actually mean by trans enough here? Can a femme be non-binary? Yes. Can a mask be non-binary? Absolutely. There's no, there's no real reason, I guess I want to say, um, for us to, for us to feel like we have to keep our community small. What I'm really trying to do in my work and in my life and with my family is really lean into this like expanse into abundance. When we start to ask the questions, who's in and who's out, we know that we're functioning from a contracted response that says it's not safe. And that's super valid. We need to listen to that. We also need to question where that, tra- where that teaching comes from, where that contraction comes from, and start to actually ask of, and maybe even require of, the cishet communities that we're part of, that they ally with us, that they come alongside us and actually help to create more spaces where being trans isn't so othered, where being non-binary isn't questioned. We don't have to validate our gender to anyone, that we get to be our own selves in whatever that looks like, in however we want to label that or not label that, and to just keep leaning into this place of following the process. Oftentimes, uh, in our gender groups and also in the therapy room, we end up having these like fun conversations about how queer time is non-linear. Cishat time is quite linear. You go to school, you meet somebody, you get married, you get two and a half kids, a dog, and a white picket fence. It's the American dream. It's not really sounding so much like a dream these days. Um, but there's this like linear assumption about how life is supposed to go. And as soon as you touch queer land, that's 
all blown out of the water. There is no linear time. You arrive when you arrive. You're always in process. You try on names, you try on identities, you try on pronouns, and then you take it back off if it doesn't fit anymore. And we don't have to keep feeling like we need to arrive and then validate that as a like, I'm staying here forever. We arrive and we validate that as part of the process. Thanks for showing up how you're showing up today. Here's what my name is. Great, cool, we're gonna follow that. And so my encouragement sort of to the trans community and also to the cishet community is just, for lack of another term, let's normalize process. Let us be in process with one another and start having the conversations, checking in about pronouns and names in ways that don't have to feel scary and don't have to ask, like we're asking somebody to arrive and to stay there, but rather that we can be in process with one another. That's kind of what's showing up across the board in the therapy room. And then the third thing, um, I know that I mentioned at the beginning that there were three things that I sort of have noticed come up, is more on the side of those of us who are in the helping industry. So as therapists, social workers, spiritual care providers, um, there's this really interesting common thread of imposter syndrome that seems to be popping up quite regularly. And that is something that I find really, really interesting. And the reason in some ways that I find that so interesting is kind of related to this, this piece of working in my own practice. Um, when I first opened my practice, I remember I went to my supervisor so many times and I was like, hey, I don't know, like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if this is like my thing. Um, I don't know if I can like hold my own space. Am I good enough at this yet? Do I have all the, the right skills? How much more training do I need? And asking myself all these questions about whether or not I was good enough. And so I started to notice the role of shame popping up now in my workspace also. And when we sit with imposter syndrome, what we're sitting with is, again, that sort of colonial, white, patriarchal, cishet coding uh, that somehow asks us for arrival and perfection. So when imposter syndrome sort of started to pop up as common threads amongst myself and amongst um, a number of my colleagues, um, I started to get curious about what that contraction would leave us with. And so I think it's really interesting uh, to think at, in those beginning months of deciding to sort of start my own practice with all that imposter syndrome kicking up, I really realized that there was part of me that was like, I just want somebody to tell me what to do. I want somebody to validate that I'm doing a good job. Tell me I'm doing a good job. This work is really hard to just like know that I've got the skills. I'm not losing access to my skills. Um, and so there was a huge learning curve. I mean, business side stuff itself is a huge learning curve. Um, but it was a huge learning curve in what it is to sort of sit with the shame, turn toward it, say, thanks for reminding me that this coding runs deep. And also, I'm making a new move here. I'm leaning into what I know to be true for myself. And I am like pushing forward in this. And honestly, I think that 
working for myself was one of the best gifts I ever gave myself because it made me push through this imposter syndrome that very likely could have kept me working for other people and in collectives and for in, in institutions for a lot longer um, had I not been supported by my trans community, by my family, to know that this is something that I could do, that I could step out and I can run my own business and I can see the people work with the intersections that work for me and allow sort of water to find its level. And on that front, I feel like the only bump that I've ever really come across, which is a fairly common one in running your own business, is just simply about names. <laughs> names and paperwork. Um, and if that is sort of like the biggest bump that sort of comes from running your own business as a trans person, then those are things that can be supported. There's a lot out there about um, how to do those proces processes. Uh, there are some really great collectives out there. And so I think that my encouragement to anybody in the trans community who is thinking about starting their own business or is sort of questioning safe workplaces even, um, to really just sit with those deep inner questions and think, okay, like how much of this is just programmed out of me to not believe that I can just do this? How much are we sitting with, um, with all the oppressive systems around us at intersections that really we've sat in oppression for a long time? Um, so the, I, yeah, the, the question here, I think, is like the one of privilege, right? Which is like, how much do I have access to? What don't I have access to? Who are the trans folks around me that I can draw from? If my communities or if my family aren't folks who can support me, there are so many trans folks who are doing this work. We have transcestors who've gone before us and that we are sort of now working because they've done all of this pushing. They've done so much social work in order to sort of pave the way for us to be here, to be present in the year 2021, um, doing the work that we really care about. So from my side, that's sort of what I have to offer. Um, there's so much that gets to be said and not said here and and I think that what I really really love about my work is that I get to just be myself I get to show up in the therapy room and if a client wants to talk about things that are specific to trans identity then we do and also we are multi-storied individuals with a huge plethora of other things that are also going on in our lives that we also get to sit with and so I love that I get to sort of hold space with people that isn't just focused in one direction, but gets to actually sit with the, the wholeness of a person, the wholeness of a journey of where we're actually at and where we're headed. So I just want to thank you again, Sean, so much for bringing these things into the collective, for having these conversations, and I look forward to chatting with you again sometime. Um, and I just, again, want to thank Chris. That was just great. Um, I, I love this whole thing so much and I will try and get you on an actual interview on this podcast at some point. I hope that the tech works. Um, but if it does, I will definitely let you know. Um, again, all of their links are going to be put in the description of this episode. So go look 
at their practice, go look at all of that stuff. And if they seem like um, an, an interesting person to you, maybe go follow them and check out all of their links. But yeah, thank you, Chris, so much for being on. Now that we are almost finished with the episode, I'd like to remind you all to follow this podcast wherever you're listening. It allows you to stay up to date and never miss an episode. If you like this episode, please share it with someone else that would. And like it if there's a like button where you're listening. Some some of these podcast platforms are different, so I don't really know what to say. But yeah, if there is a like button, punch it. If there's a follow button, punch it. Just do do all the things. You guys are, if you're on this podcast, you're techie enough. You guys know what to do. But yeah, we are pretty close to the end of the episode. Just letting you know, this is a good time to pause and go drink some water. If you didn't pick up some water at the start of this whole thing, maybe go to the washroom, anything like that. This is the perfect cutoff. And now for our final topic. I I have to cover the little Nas X situation. I'm sorry guys. I know, I know that this is just, this has been done by plenty other more competent trans people than myself. But like, it's it's too easy. I have to. I just have to talk about it. But let's just get right into it, because there is too much lore involved with this situation. I feel like I'm decoding the freaking Walton files. I shouldn't have made that joke, because now I'm going to have to go rewatch them all. That wasn't a good decision. But anyways, if you watch the Walton files, I love you. Um, I love all of you anyways, but y'all get extra love. But moving on, let's get started. So the start of this whole event was when Drake released his new album, Certified Lover Boy, which the album cover was just very bland in my personal opinion. Like it was basically a bunch of pregnant women emojis of different ethnicities plastered on top of it. Um, honestly, I, I don't think I was the only one. I think that's how this situation happened in the first place. So in response to this album cover, Lil Nas X tweeted a version of the album cover in which he puts up pregnant men instead. Now, the whole joke of this was making what Drake did gay, which was funny, honestly, because I mean, Drake is kind of homophobic. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say that, like, oh my gosh, he is, let's like, like, we're not gonna crucify him. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's it's kind of it's kind of funny. It's a very Lil Nas X way of doing things. Um, but it was also meant to be shocking, and it would be fine if it were shocking if men couldn't actually get pregnant. But we can. So this first little thing Lil Nas did was clearly not targeted at trans people. This was a joke about how straight men in music the whole thing is just being into women and screwing women and being with women and little nas was just flipping that coin but of course this goes viral and little nas has 
frankly a great idea. I'm gonna be honest with you from a marketing standpoint. His his genius and his marketing team are just oh my gosh. Um, anyways, he decides that he is going to build off of this tweet to promote his new album Montero, which by the way, freaking listen to it. There is not a song on that album that isn't a banger. I'm telling you. But anyways, now there have already been jokes between musicians in the past about an album being your baby. But no one has done what Lil Nas did. So Lil Nas donned a fake pregnancy belly leading up to the release of Montero. Now I'd like to say that Lil Nas's marketing team is just genius again. I just have to reiterate this. But regardless of all this, this marketing ploy has been seen as quite problematic for legitimate reasons by some trans people. So the general argument about this is that Lil Nas is profiting off of the shock value that leaves pregnant trans people harassed, which is absolutely true. Lil Nas's success comes from the idea that men can't really get pregnant, but we can and we do. All those of us who do often face a lot of harassment, honestly, like Lil Nas does what a lot of us end up doing as a joke, and he gets praise and we get death threats. That's sort of the argument, is that he is just using our suffering for profit. Um... I completely lost where I was reading. I'm sorry. I had this all planned, and now I can't read it. Um, but yeah. Anyways, now I'd like to say that Lil Nas has always been a gay artist, not a queer artist, in the sense that he is fighting homophobia. That is the goal that he has, and that is an admirable goal. He, But he is not looking at the entire queer community. He is not looking at the trans community. He's fighting for strictly the gay community, not us. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, honestly, we both need some separate activism because, I mean, we do sometimes want different things. But it does seem to suck that, you know, a lot of people who are advocates for gay people just seem to forget the trans community. Um, but I mean, that's just pushing us to uh, support more trans artists over top of just any flavor of queer artist. But yeah, honestly, we just need to be placed in similar positions because nobody can represent us better than we can. But yeah, generally speaking, that's all that I've heard about this situation. Like, I don't personally have any adverse you know, issues about Lil Nas doing this, because at the end of the day, I know it is mostly just out of ignorance. Like, he is not the most progressive queer person ever He's when it comes to trans stuff, right? Like, he's not aware, especially because this is one of the issues in the trans community that your average person doesn't even know really exists. Like, I know plenty of people who are like, legitimate trans allies like they totally are who didn't know that this whole thing of like men being pregnant like trans men being pregnant was like an issue so i mean i don't think it's little nas's fault i definitely think that it 
does perpetuate systemic like big issues in the trans community that's totally true but like at the same time i don't think most people would like connect those two things together i think the whole joke was like oh like drake is getting all of those girls pregnant haha <laughs> well i'm gonna do the gay version of it just to show you how stupid it is right because oftentimes people are like oh you're a gay artist so you're being gay is the in is the entirety of your whole artistry so he's kind of flipping that and going oh yeah but this straight guy is literally doing the same thing like i think that was more his focus and it i i don't think it had anything to do with the trans side of things to be honest that's not to say that the arguments are invalid because they totally are valid I'm just saying that this was not intentional whatsoever. This was just someone, not necessarily even being ignorant, but just being, like, just trying to do something completely different. Like, it wasn't... I don't, I don't know how to put this properly. I should have scripted this part. But, you know, it's basically just, hey, my priorities are here, right? Because his priorities are battling homophobia which is a great priority to have for sure. But I mean, yeah, I, I see both perspectives on this. I'm not too heavy headed on it at all because I mean, it, it's gonna happen anyways. Like I don't see how, it, it doesn't affect me personally. I'm not someone who is transmasculine and pregnant or wants to be transmasculine and pregnant. Um, so I can't, I can't say, any of the arguments are invalid or valid at all, right? Because, I mean, it's not my place. But, I mean, yeah, I still think Lil Nas is a great representation for the gay community. I think that's great. I think we need him in the spotlight somewhat because, I mean, he is alternative to what a lot of gay artists in the past have been like, you know? Because, I mean, he's not white, which is, like, that's new, most of the gay people that we get in the scene are all white, right? Like that is that is a that is an amazing feat on its own. I don't think we would benefit from um doing anything too rash with this, right? Like and again, I want to say that like nobody who's critiquing him is saying, "Let's get rid of his platform," right? I think generally speaking every trans person who's like hey, this is a little weird, is just being like, can we acknowledge this for a second? Like, nobody is saying that, like, let's just, like, crucify Lil Nas X. Like, that's not the whole thing. But, yeah, I could I could talk in circles about this, so I'm not going to. But, um, yeah, that is basically all I have to say about this whole situation. Um, it's pretty much over now, because Montero is out, which... Really, seriously, it is a great album. I don't care what genre you listen to. Heck, I don't listen to, like, any of the mainstream stuff at all. I think it's boring, but this just... It's amazing. I, I love it. I have listened to it on repeat multiple times. It is great. Um, I really recommend it. Um, but yeah, so that's all my opinions on Lil Nas. Lil Nas, you're still cool. Okay. <laughs> I love how we said that as if this, this guy would ever watch this. But, yeah. Lil Nas is still cool. 
just be aware of these things because they do affect trans people. But yeah. Now, this is the end of the episode. Please follow the podcast wherever you're listening and share with others you think would enjoy it. The interview section of this podcast is an open one, by the way. If you wish to be interviewed on the podcast, please DM me at the underscore trans agenda on Instagram. While you're there, please give me a follow so you don't miss any new content. This is the first podcast in this new format, and I am very proud of it, but I also want your critiques, like your ideas of how I can make this sort of thing better. Um, I hope it was all it cra- I cracked it up to be um, for all of you, but again, these are monthly episodes. They will all be posted at the end of each month, but anyways, thank you all so much for watching. I hope y'all enjoyed it, I love doing this stuff. I have missed it for a month. I needed to, you know, get all of my creative juices out into this. Um, But I hope you guys liked my uh, stuff. Um, Keep fighting, you beautiful people. All the love. Peace.